Hello and welcome to the Vine Life Podcast. I'm Tony Clark, your host. Please note that today's interview will be audio only because of technical issues. My guest today is Dr. Gary Habermas, and Gary has dedicated his entire professional life to the examination of the relevant historical, philosophical, and theological issues surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus. His extensive list of publications and debates provide a thorough account of the current state of the issue. He is a distinguished research professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy and Theology at Liberty University. In the words of J. Warner Wallace at last year's National Conference on Christian Apologetics, he said of Gary, he is the foremost expert of the resurrection in the world today. And Gary, those are uh, some pretty strong and, and, and powerful, encouraging words from someone who's not quite a slouch. So, Gary, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. It's a good opportunity to, to minister. Gary, I certainly want to talk about the resurrection and the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, but at the same time, I, I listen to your interviews. I've read your books. I, I've read your publications, but I seldom hear about your history. And I, I, if you don't mind, I'd like to start there. Uh, tell me about, if you would, tell me about a little bit about your history and how you came to faith. Give me a little bit of background first, if you would. Well, I'm from Detroit, and uh, I was raised in my youngest years in the uh, Methodist Church, but my folks moved. And we weren't close to that Methodist church. So my mother said, not, not knowing what it meant, my mother said, there's a Baptist church here about a half a mile away. And we started going. It was a German Baptist church. And um, I went there for a long time. And, and uh, that's where I uh, made my profession of faith and was baptized. And, um, and almost immediately I was... I didn't know what conviction was. I didn't know what a call was, but I thought I was being convicted to go into ministry. And um, uh, pastoral in particular, but, and I was a pastor for seven years. And then I uh, finished my degrees and started teaching. And I've been teaching for, I have to go back and count. Um, 45 years, something like that. So that's about it. I, I went through a lot of doubt because uh, the closest person in my life died when I was a child. And then my doubt was framed shortly after my doubt ended. My wife and mother of my four children died of stomach cancer. And I remarried a family friend. But uh, my, I had to kind of do double duty, teaching and raising the kids for a little while, uh, you know, like homework and what's for dinner and everything else. So the Lord brought me through the doubt, and uh, that got me into apologetics and to a few other things. You mentioned them, uh, doubt, near-death experiences, and uh, so... That's been my life from that point on. 
Gary, I'm curious, um, what specifically caused you to put so much time and effort over the years specifically into the resurrection? Well, when I started having doubt, my family got concerned and friends did too. And so they started saying things to me like, hey, have you ever heard of the evidence for creation? Or have you ever heard the evidence for the reliability of the New Testament? Or, you know, archaeology is a real good one. And they started saying these things to me. And I studied each one of those a little bit, enough to see that it wasn't going to help me with my needs. Because I thought, hey, I'm not saying these things are bad. There's good there's good evidence for these subjects, but I just don't think I can rest my faith on them. I don't think the I don't think the uh, evidence is that good that if it happened, if this event happened or events, then I could know that Jesus's offer is still standing and so on. What that's that connection? It's that bridge between evidence and personal decision. And uh, so one day I was reading, I hadn't considered this before, believe it or not, but I was reading a little a little book, uh, kind of a commentary on scripture. It wasn't very big, but the author said, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, what he taught was true, because if the God of the universe got involved, no other solution makes sense than that that the message is confirmed. And I didn't know anything about that topic. I knew about the resurrection, but I knew nothing about it. Could it, with, could it undergird faith? And so I made a comment to a few people that day. I said, you know, this might be able to answer my questions and bear the weight of my existential question about relationship. And I don't want to say years and years later uh i found out that to be true i actually found out to be true pretty quickly because in the first two years of my study i um i thought to myself boy one of these days i i'm gonna have to write something not because i wanted to publish but just because i wanted to keep everything in my head and wanted to know where to get it and hoped i could help somebody else with this material so I settled on the resurrection because it seemed to be the only topic which, if true, was easily the strongest answer for my doubts. Gary, the, the passage in 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's verse 17, it says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. In other words, our, our faith is worthless. There's no hope for, for, for eternal life. There's no hope for resurrection for us. And my question to you is, does Christianity really stand or fall on the resurrection? From 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through uh, 19, and then 20 starts a new paragraph, most commentators think. All those verses tell us what we don't have if there's no resurrection. And there's a real short response here. Uh well, I'll tell you what, I'll say it to a PhD student of mine that just finished his PhD about two weeks ago. He wrote me a letter and he said, one of my students said to me, if Jesus is raised from the dead, everything is true. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, nothing is true. 
of the essentials. Amen. So to me, it all stands or falls with the resurrection. Now, Gary, you've come up with something called minimal facts. And for the non-scholar like me, it's, it's extremely helpful. And I, I want you to go into this as well. But are these minimal facts, are these uh, irrefutable in your opinion? Well, we'd have, but nothing is irrefutable. If by irrefutable we mean 100% proof. Whenever the sciences speak, we often, a big phrase today in our society, time now in the news. And science, a lot of people don't realize, it's an inductive discipline for people who's the, who are familiar with that. And that means it can only be known to a higher or lower percentage of probability or improbability. So I would say if you throw your hat in the circle of history and you want to do history to check out your faith, you can only get conclusions that history can yield. And history does not yield a hundredly event. But you say, well, that's not very good for my faith. But hey, everything we know is established that way. A anything that's established inductively, all these things are established by, by facts that can be more or less known. To dinner after the broadcast, and it doesn't occur to you that you could be poisoned at the dinner table. That happens. People die. Uh, there's pills in this country where, but things happened, and it was not as they thought. I don't want to get off the track here, but the point is we can only be really, really sure. And what I do with the minimal facts is. I use data which ha have two characteristics. They are true each by many other evidences which confirm them. And secondly, this is far behind. This is second place by a mile. Because the evidence is so good, now what they're going to disagree with is the interpretation of the data. Well, they could, could they could concede that Jesus was raised from the dead, but it doesn't mean that Christianity is true. They could fix it. It's like the circuit on your television's broken, and you've got to repair the circuit. Um, that's what happens. So I use these crucifixion. I only use facts which everybody allows, but the reason the critics allow them is because they are evidence on an average. I just finished that part of the book. They're, they're, they're evidence on an average of about 14 evidences each. There's about four single one of these facts. So I go through crucifixion and then the next uh, five. And then I talk about the empty tomb. And that's not quite the same as the others. It's not quite as strong, but it's still good. So I talk about six plus one. Gary, it's, it's my understanding that you came up with these minimal facts when you were having a crisis of faith in your life. Can you fill me in just a little bit more about that experience? Yeah, I was in grad school. Oh, 
I remember the chair I was sitting in. I remember the light I was sitting under. I was doing my homework for a grad, a grad class and I was having a lot of doubts, which one it is, because my, I, my, I've gone back and forth with all of them. I, I, I used to debate Christians. I've used all the objections, and but I was sitting there that night, and I was concerned about an objection, and I said, "How do I know that this objection can be answered?" And I thought to myself, "Well." I'd, I'd cite a New Testament verse, and I'll have to think of other ways uh, to, to, to get through to the critic. Now, verses are not put to talk to them and answer the questions, and they say they poor, they're poor. That's a circuit that I have to fix. I've got to get in there and fix that circuit. And so what I did that night in the chair was I was thinking about this objection, and I said, what if Rudolf Boltmann's New Testament was true? Now, Rudolf Boltmann in school, he was the guy to answer. And he is quite a, in, in the sermon, who may be the best known, well, Bart calls himself an atheist, the New Testament specialist, and he is a New Testament specialist, but Bart called himself an atheist. I would say Boltmann was, if I'm using Boltmann's Bible, how can I answer this objection? And I started, I started reeling off the facts. Well, this would still be true. This would still be true. This would still be true. Boltman allows this. Boltman allows that. Boltman allows this. And it's not true because Boltman allows it. It's true because Boltman allows it due to the evidence for it. So, 20 reasons. And then I flipped the sheet over, and I said, I wrote on the paper, if the person I'm talking to is even more skeptical than this, I'll reduce some of these most objectionable facts and still have enough to prove my point. And I dated it at the top. It was uh, this. It was the spring of nineteen. It's in my file, and as I tell some people in lectures, that was the birth of the minimal facts, at least the way I did it, because I was trying to say two things: what facts am I most sure of, and why is it that the critics just let these go and don't argue about them? And so I started doing that with all the naturalistic theories realizing that we've got a lot of evidence on our side and the naturalistic theories just don't explain the data, even according to the critics. So I just worked that same theory and here I am doing a magnum opus on this subject here. I've, I've got, oh, I don't know, I've got almost 50 books, but about half of them are on the resurrection. Well, people think I'm putting those half that I've already written together into a big book, but I'm not. I'm starting from scratch. I've only repeated a few pages. The rest is all new, and I'm right now I'm at almost 6,000 pages on the resurrection. And it's coming out, Lord willing, in four different volumes, four huge volumes. But all I'm saying by that is there is an awful, 
awful, awful lot of material here that argues for the resurrection. And I think something's happening today. I think critics are realizing that they can't do much with the data we know. And the resurrection is looking better and better. Now, someone's going to say, oh, listen to him, go for it. He's, he's prejudiced. Look at that. And, and they might even get mad at me. But I realize they're angry. And they'll even be angry at this. But a lot of times, they're, I'm friends with a lot of these guys. I'm really friends with these skeptics. And I'll say to them, oh, okay, okay, time out, time out. Why don't you tell me how to explain this fact away? And here's what you hear right away. Oh, oh, oh I have faith. I'll say, hey, I don't hear me talking much faith. I hear you talking faith on the other side because you don't have any evidence against it. But let's try this again. Pick your best theory. What works? Now, now you're starting to get me upset, is what I'm said to me. You're starting to get me upset right now. Well, yeah, you're upset because, yeah, yeah, I didn't push you in the corner to make you feel small. I'm trying to show you there's no there's no data. That's an actual case, and that was acted out. That was a debate. He was an atheist, and he said, you're getting me sick because you got me in a corner, and I'm tired of being here. And I thought, well. I didn't say this to him, but I thought to myself, so so much the worse for your view. Okay, Gary, so let's start getting into the minimal facts, this list that you have. Uh, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. That's pretty well known and not disputed. Uh, the second one is, and we'll get into this a little bit, is the disciples saw something, something that changed them. They had... That the disciples had experiences, real experiences. The disciples believed they saw the risen Jesus. And I'm telling you today, Bart Ehrman accepts that. Garrett Ludeman, unfortunately, just died um, a couple years ago. Garrett Ludeman, the German atheist, uh, believed that. John Shelby Spong, who, who died shortly after Ludeman, he believed that. John, John Dominic Crossan, these guys are founding critics, the biggest names in New Testament criticism. And, and John uh, Dominic Crossan believes it. They all believe this. The difference is the interpretation. They'll give you the facts, and then they'll say, but I'm not willing to go with you all the way to Christianity. And I'll, and I'll say, well, I'm not being cocky, but I guess you're not, because if you were willing to go, you would be a Christian. You're not. So I figured the circuit's broken somewhere. And... Um, so we'll get talking about that. But I challenge him directly. I'll say, show me where the break in my circuit is. Well, I didn't come here to do this. I, I know, I know, I know. Forget all this. Just show me where my circuit is. I'm not saying, you know, and they're and they become uncomfortable. Now I'm not saying it always goes like this and they're all and they're never they're they never have anything worthwhile to say. Some of them I just wrote to two young ladies the other day, very, very sharp. One was a teenager, and I think the other one was a teenager. She was, she was uh, going after some of these facts. And I wrote her a long email, which is hard for me because I'm a two-finger typist. It took me probably an hour to type out this letter. And I said, here's my arguments. Uh, you got to find the, 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 the logic here. you got to find the problem. 
So, and I want to be sure everybody hears this. I'm not saying they don't have any answers. They have answers. Their interpretation of the facts is different than our interpretation. But I want to know why they're taking that interpretation without the kind of data we have for the orthodox interpretation. I mean, if there's 15 arguments per fact or close. Now, when I say arguments, either full-blown arguments or what I call considerations. I would call I would say that breakdown would amount to major and minor arguments. I'm not saying they're all knockout punches, but uh, some of them are. Let's put it this way: some of them are home runs, and some of them are only singles. But they're they're evidence for the facts. And if someone says, "I don't buy it," okay, this is easy. Please tell me why you got that guy out before he got to first base. Tell me why the ball didn't go over the fence. I just want to know what's wrong with what I'm saying. Well, 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 you know, you say this all the time, and you could be wrong. Yes, I could be wrong. Oh, you admit that? <laughs> I've admitted it in everything I've written. Oh, well, where do you think? I don't know. I just don't buy it. Why not? I don't know. Is it because you don't want to? Well, I hadn't thought about that, but... See, a lot of these guys are my buddies, and they'll be real honest, and they'll say... It could be that. I'm not excited about Christianity. Okay. Well, that's fair. You're 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 able to cast your own vote. You know, you I keep changing my metaphors here, baseball to to voting to whatever. But you know, I can only account for what I've come up with and you have to come up if if this bothers you, if my argument bothers you, then you have to come up with an alternative. Okay, so let's let's kind of go through the minimal facts, if you will. And one of them that's, that stuck out to me is the Apostle Paul. He converted from being an antagonist of Christianity to an apologist or a defender of the faith. Can you go through that list, if you would, please? Sure, and that one I'm going from number two to number six on that one, because I'll just tell the other ones real quickly. Three... All right, Jesus died on the cross, one. Two, they had experiences that they thought were the risen Jesus. That's, that's two. Three is they proclaimed this message very, very early. Not 40 years later. Not like the guy who wrote his memoirs of World War II in 1990, 50 years after he saw them. He was an eyewitness, but he wrote the memoirs 50 years later. Not that. Um, these people explained immediately what they saw. How soon? Well, Garrett Ludeman, again, the atheist New Testament scholar, passed away a couple years ago. Ludeman said they proclaimed their message immediately. That's his word. Now, Acts says 50 days. But, you know, Ludeman says right away. They proclaimed it right away. Fourth, they turned the world upside down. I don't say, I don't say what a lot of Christians say, that you can prove all the disciples died as martyrs. It's impossible to use good historical arguments. If, if there's a good historical argument against what I'm saying, I'll concede that. I do. I think we can only find that uh, three to maybe five of the 12 apostles died as martyrs. Because the other ones, we have it in the sources, but it's too late to be history. So I'll go with the ones we have. James, uh, the brother of Jesus. Paul, one of the ones you just, the guy you just mentioned. Peter. Those three, we have martyrdom sources for them in the very first century, and uh, none of them are in the Gospels. Uh, I mean, all three of them are in non-New non Testament works, and one of them is in Josephus. So I just say they were willing to die. 
And then fourth is James. How did was James converted when Mark 3, Mark 6, John 7 all say he was an unbeliever? And six, your point, Paul. And Paul's is significant. Most critics think that Paul's conversion is the number one reason we believe in the resurrection. They would take what I call fact six as the best evidence. And they will give you, most people do not know this. People who think Jesus never lived, remember this when you're talking to somebody who thinks, uh, they call them, this isn't a derogatory term, they call themselves mythicists. They don't think Jesus lived. And they're when you and they say, show me something, you go, what you said earlier. Let's talk about 1 Corinthians 15. They go, time out. I knew you were going to do this. You can't get away without quoting the New Testament. You got to use your own sources, prejudice. That's what the guys say who haven't got graduate degrees, are not specialists, and they make the guys like Bart Ehrman and the other specialist atheists, they make them angry. Bart, Earth, Bart Ehrman has written 20 pages in one of his books against these guys because they don't use the sources. Almost every critic there is, New Testament atheist, will give you seven of Paul's 13 books. And so I say to the Christian, do you want to take the seven books they give you and use them? Or do you want to say, no, unless I get all 13, I'm not going to talk to you. I'll take the seven. Because seven, in my view, are in the canon. The other six they don't give me, I'll take what they give me for two reasons. Number one, they're giving them to me, telling me to use them. Number two, they're Paul's major works. If you're a pastor preaching on Paul's writings, these are the ones you will talk about. They're namely Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, First Thessalonians, the earliest of the New Testament books probably, and Philemon. They'll give you those seven. And if you use the verses there, they won't tell you that's stupid, that's a Christian. They'll tell you, okay, good verse, good text. But let me tell you why that doesn't really help argument. They'll, they'll tell you to talk about Paul's verse, but they won't tell you it's not Paul and it's a bunch of baloney. So right away, you can use seven of the Paul, Paul's books. And I'll, I, to use my minimal facts, I will often use 1 Corinthians 15 and the beginning, the end of Galatians 1, beginning of Galatians 2, which that that's a total of 15 verses there. So first, uh, first Corinthians 15 and 15 verses, and I'll get, they'll give you both books. They'll give you both books, and you can debate about it with them. And uh, that's the material I use because the best evidences are right there. Now, I use the empty tomb. The empty tomb doesn't make my minimal facts list, never has. It has as many evidences as anything else. It has more than 20 evidences. Note, the way critics do argumentation. Not the way Christians do. Well, this verse says the tomb is empty, so it must have been. And this verse says it was, so that's two sources. No, it's not. That, that If that's Matthew, he copied off Mark. You know, that's only one source. I, I'm going to take the critic side on this. If you want to take a critical look at this stuff, you can't count that as two verses, and you can't tr call it say it's true because the verse says so. I understand the skeptics. I don't think, I'm not going to quote Karl Marx and say it's true because Karl Marx says it's true. You have to have the data. So I'll debate with them. But all the reasons I use come from the methods they apply to the New Testament. Now, among the minimal facts, uh, the primary minimal facts, what I noticed is that the empty tomb is not right at the top. Can you, can you talk about the empty tomb? And number seven, um, the fact is as good as any of them. The fact of the empty tomb is virtually as strong as any of the rest of them. 
but the critical allowance of the empty tomb is not as strong. So here, I don't say it's false or anything like that. I'll say I won't use the empty tomb unless I get to tell the critic what I think his rules allow me to say. And 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 here's, you know, I, when I go to a university and speak, I'll often start like this in the front of the room. And interestingly enough, I'm often co-sponsored at a university by a Christian group on campus and an atheist group on campus. And both their presidents will come up and say something and welcome me and we get started. And I start and I hold up a New Testament and I'll say, y'all tell me something. There's a wide range of views in here, atheists to believers. Tell me something. If this book is inspired, every word is God's word. If it is, did the resurrection occur? And they all say something. Let's take, let's quote the atheists. It's kind of cute because the students are really well-mannered, at least when I'm there. Um, and they'll say, yeah, if it's inspired. Now, I don't think it's inspired, but if it is, yeah, I'll give that to you. And I'll say, okay, good. That's all I want to know. If it's inspired, Jesus is raised. Next point. If it's not inspired, but it's really reliable. Let's take, now, Craig Blomberg and many others believe in, in inspiration, but they do reliability. So let's use their argument for reliability. If this book is his Bible, I'll say, here's the inspired one. Here's the middle of the road one. This, this one's only reliable. If Jesus, if the, if the Gospels are reliable, is Jesus raised from the dead? And the students will say, well, it depends on which portions are reliable. And I'll say, that's an excellent response. I'm not going to say that because Paul wrote to Fleeman about a, a slave coming to the Lord, that that passages are reliable. And then I'll say, okay, here's my third Bible. It's, an, it's inspired. Jesus is raised. It's reliable. Jesus might be raised. And lastly, it's uninspired. The New Testament is a normal book written by people who thought they were telling the truth, but they got a lot of things wrong. And a Bible like that is Jesus raised from the dead. And the Christians will say, oh, that's a tough one. And the atheists there will go, nope, nope, that's our kind of Bible. And they're all laughing. They're kind of cutting up with themselves, with each other. And there'll be hundreds of people there, and they'll go, no, he's not raised on a Bible like that. And I'll say, right at the beginning, I'll say, here's what I'm here tonight to talk to you concerning. On this Bible, the Bible that's not inspired and not reliable, but there's some facts. There's some facts there. Like, we don't know about Homer's, um, the Iliad, the Odyssey. But there's some facts in the Iliad and Odyssey. And how much how much the Trojan War really happened. Well, I could do a master's thesis on that. There's a lot of stuff there. But Homer could be all wet on a lot of things. Okay, what if the New Testament's all wet, but we'll use the facts that that people think are established? And I'll say, I'm here to tell you tonight that we have enough to say that Jesus is raised from the dead. And some atheists will call out good-naturedly and will say, well, move on. I want to hear this. And I'll say, okay, well, I can see why you'd say that because I'm using your New Testament. And they'll go, okay. And I give the minimal facts argument. And um, 
I'm not going to go and tell you what happens in a lot of these places because that sounds like I'm tooting my own horn, and I'm not. I'm not going to do that. I'm not here to toot my own horn, and even there, but um, they're not quite sure what to do with the argument, and a lot of good things have come out of it. To Lord's glory, I don't do anything. I tell people, I never leave any, lead anybody to Christ. I hate these kind of testimonies where it's, you know. Count one for me. I led somebody to Christ. You, you didn't lead anybody to Christ. That's that's a. The Lord might have used you, but have that ability to push a button and push anybody into the kingdom. Pushing and pulling is not your job. We don't separate the wheat from the tares. We don't name either the wheat or the tares. So, I just put it out there, and I love Greg Kokel. If you know Greg, uh, the West Coast apologist. Good guy. Just talked to him yesterday. Uh, he, I love it when he says to the crowd, he goes, hey, I'm not trying to convert you to the crowd. He's, I'm not trying to convert you. I'm just trying to put a stone in your shoe. And I love that line. I want to give you a few things that I want you to think about. Gary, I've, I've got a question. Um, a verse stands out to me, and it's John chapter 3. It's right, right around verse nineteen, and and Jesus said, "This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil." And I'm I'm curious, and I wonder if folks reject the you know the 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 minimal facts of the resurrection simply because we as we as human beings we want to hold on to the evil instead of the good so we're not coming over to faith in Christ even though the facts presented are convincing simply because we want to hold on to our to our flesh we want to hold on to darkness rather than light does that make any sense uh, am, am i on the right track there well tony i get that is probably the most in the old days, I would ask, I would get a question, why isn't this theory as a general rule? But the most common question I get is, I got a bunch of buddies who are atheists or really close to it. If your facts are so good, how come none of them become Christians? And I'll say, because there is something more important in each of our lives than what we do with facts whether we believe the U.S. won the Vietnamese War or not, whether we believe somebody did this or that in time, the closer it is to your heart, the more, you know, the more uh, stuff you have in this answer, the tougher you're going to be. Biblical worldview. If your top, top three values in your life, values in the New Testament, chances are you will never come. In fact, you will never make the decision if the Holy Spirit's not working. I mean, that's that, it's, it's not a human. How can they hear your facts and not become a Christian? And I don't want to be tough, but oftentimes they don't care. It might be the seventh most popular thing on their list, and they've got six other things they'd rather do. It might be number two on their list, but number one is by far the biggest thing on their list. And they just don't want to hear it. <laughs> One fellow said to me, he said, look, I'm only 19. He said, I want to sow my wild oats, and then maybe I'll come to the Lord. And I said, hey, look, at, um, 
you know where I am on these things, but but that's that's between you and the Lord. I'm not going to do any good for you to twist your arm to try to say uh, today you're a Christian and then tomorrow you wake up and you think, man, did I do something stupid last night or what? Um, I'm not there. I'm not into that forcing thing. And um, I I think that's the biggest reason. It's not here. Here's what it's not. I'll say to that guy. If you got, I got six friends and none of us think this works. I'll say, can I correct that a little bit? None of you want it to work. Because let let's let me prove that's true. Okay. Let me let me prove it's true. All right. Refute my arguments. Tell me where these facts are wrong. Hey, listen, I really like to talk, but I told my buddies I'd be out of here right now, so I'm I'm gonna I I gotta go. But thanks for talking. You've been a good guy. Appreciate it. And that's how it usually ends. And sometimes later they write me an email. Many times I never hear from them. Many times they do the right thing. But that's the main reason. It's not because, here's what it isn't. I'm not becoming a Christian because I can refute three of your six reasons. That's not on the plate. That's not what they're saying. I don't think I've ever had anybody say something or other. I'm saying the history is just good. Gary, as we approach the end of the program, I, I want to ask you a question, and it's a question that I've asked for sev for several of my guests recently. And what type of legacy would you like to leave to future generations with with the work that you're doing? I hope this is maturity, but I just told a guy yesterday. I just told one of my. I only teach at the PhD level. I teach all my students are doctoral students. And I told a doctoral student yesterday, I said, you know, when I was younger, I wanted to write the book that everybody would acclaim. The next time I wanted to do this, the next time I wanted to be a big speaker. I said, you know, today I said my, my views have changed. And I just hope and pray that the Lord allows me to minister. And I get thrilled when somebody hears the thing, the message all the way through. And if that stone is in their shoe, listen, if they take the stone out and throw it a thousand yards away, that's up to them. But if they've heard the message, that in itself is a plus. I, I want to minister, and I want to say to people, try to answer this data, and then you wrestle with what it means. Uh, so I would say my, the biggest emphasis I have right now is... When I stop to write an email to a doubter when I should be doing my deadline today, which I'm, by the way, way before, way behind on, will this have a chance of touching somebody's heart, this email? And that's why I stop and do those, and that's why I write emails. That's why I take speaking engagements. That's why I do interviews. Gary, are you hopeful for future generations because of some of the students that you're now teaching at Liberty University? <laughs> yeah, and probably because for since 2009, for one master's course, my total student involvement has been with PhD students. And they are a league apart from the average students. And I'm not just talking, I, I don't mean just at Liberty. I mean uh, grad students, PhD students, and other schools that I teach at. I've lectured a lot of schools and taught. Um, there's something different. And the, the 
45. Um, and they're good writers. Half of them, maybe a third to two thirds are professors and they just need that PhD to keep teaching or they're not going to be at their institution very long. They got a job, but they're not going to stay there if they don't finish your PhD. And they're there for the same reason. They want to minister to people. And that's the kind of people I talk to. That's the kind of people I want to keep talking to. And I'm past retirement age and I don't care. And I enjoy it. And my dean said to me, I said privately to my dean, used to be a student of mine. I said privately to my dean, I said, listen, I might go around thinking I'm, I, I'm doing okay for you. But if for any reason I'm not doing it, you let me know because I don't want to stay around longer than I'm ministering. And he said, he made a very nice point. He said, you stay as long as they take your classes and, and they keep coming. If you can keep them, that means, you know, something's going on and I want you to stay. So I, I was thrilled by that answer because I want to keep teaching. But if I stop tomorrow, I stop tomorrow. I'll worry about my writing then and our 16 grandkids. <laughs> wow, 16. I'll bet that they keep you busy. It does. Tomorrow we have a big party for one of them. Gary, people can find out more about you and your work at GaryHabermas.com. But do you want to talk about anything else that you're currently working on? I'm doing a lot of articles here and there and a lot of blogs, a lot of them. Um, so all those are publications of one sort or another. But I can't really think of anything until I get this big thing done. I'm on, I'm on volume three. And volume one is due out in January. If there's no delays, volume one is due out in January. It's the evidence for the resurrection. And it's 1,100 pages long, just on the data that you can get to by critics' methods. Gary, what's the best way to learn more about you and the research that you have done and you're continuing to do? Uh, the website uh, gets a lot of traffic. I appreciate that not for any other reason than because of the ministry. And also I have a YouTube channel with, I don't know, I haven't counted, I'm probably over 150 videos, but they're almost all on resurrection, doubt, near-death experiences, a little on the New Testament, historical Jesus, the Shroud of Turin. I mean, those, those topics there, you could divide probably all of them up into those categories. So, and, and this method I've been talking about, the minimal facts, I do that. I do it over and over and over again on those, those, some of those lectures are as short as three or four minutes and some of them go on for an hour and a half. I certainly want to thank Gary for joining me today for this audio version of the interview. You can find out more about Gary Habermas at GaryHabermas.com, and you'll find his other links as well, such as his YouTube page. And he has a ton of resources, videos, interviews, and also uh, articles and books and publications on his website that you can investigate. And until next time.